The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I was going to uh, do an exposition for you of Psalm 19 this morning, the, the second part of Psalm 19. I did all the, the exegetical work and, and everything, and I felt the Lord constrain me to do something different for you this morning. And uh, the reason why is because I shared with people this past week and on social media uh, that my resolution uh, for this year is Psalm 16.8. And that's been my resolution the year before that. And um, part of the year before that, Psalm 16.8 has been my resolution. And um, as I've shared this with people uh, I found that people have been helped and encouraged, and so I felt the Lord just constraining me here this morning to share this with you. So if you would turn to uh, Psalm 16, um, the way that this became my resolution is about two and a half years ago, I listened to a message that Martin Lloyd-Jones gave in London at Westminster Chapel on January 1st, 1956. January 1st, 1956. And that message pierced my heart and, and really even projected me deeper and further in what the Lord is calling me to be as a Christian, as a man, um, as, a, as a churchman, everything. And that material has been so helpful. What I've been doing the past couple years is just applying it and working it out. And so what I want to do for you this morning is give you some of that original material that Dr. Lloyd-Jones covered now 66 years ago. And then some of my own experience and application of it, if that makes sense. Um, this is the verse, Psalm 16:8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And in this one verse... Lloyd-Jones argues that you have the essence of David's spiritual life, his life maxim, if you will, his mantra. This is the guiding principle, the guiding thought of his life. This one phrase encompasses his single-minded devotion to God, the height and the depth of his 
commitment, what guided him as he was a young man shepherding sheep, what guided him as a warrior, what guided him as a king, what guided him in his relationships, what guided him as he was writing the Psalms, what guided him throughout the course of his life is this verse, Psalm 16, 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Notice this phrase, I have set the Lord. It's a principle of David's will. Uh, David describes it as a completed action. He doesn't say, I will set the Lord before me. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. This is something that he's done. This, this has become a habit in his life which has been, become so entrenched that it's been a discipline that it's become innately part of his own character, that he is a man who sets the Lord always before him. You see, Christianity is a work of grace. It begins at a work of grace. Hear me very clearly on this. Uh, you become a Christian by grace alone. God intersects your life, and He constrains you with the gospel, and you come to trust in Christ, and you believe. But after you become a Christian, we're involved in this life of what's called sanctification, of growing in godliness. And this life of sanctification isn't a life where we just sit back and relax and just say, okay, God, do it. It's a life, Paul says in Philippians 2, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you to, to work for His good pleasure. So, we're, we're called to work and to work this out. So, you notice this is something that David decisively decides to do. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. And during New Year's, you know, we often make these resolutions, these decisions that we are going to be committed to something throughout the course of the year. And what David is saying is, look, this is my life commitment. This is, this is the, the pattern of my life which I work out. And he says, notice, not just that he sets the Lord, but he says he, he sets the Lord before him. That's where he sets him. And it, it's a picture that literally his spiritual eyes are focused on the Lord. His spiritual eyes are, are, are steadily placed on the Lord. In fact, the new NIV says, that it translates this, I keep my eyes on the Lord. And obviously, God's in heaven, God's a spirit. Uh, you can't see God right now, literally, but you can set the eyes of your soul on Him. And that's what David is talking about. And, and I, I find this so fascinating. David is saying, I have perfected this art of placing the Lord foremost in my vision. And notice how often he says he does this. Always. Underline that word. Circle that word. You could translate it continually, repeatedly, without ceasing. 
He says, I constantly live my life with this practice of setting the Lord before me. It's the defining practice of my life. Okay, what does that mean? What does that mean that David sets the Lord always before him? Let me give you several things that it definitely means. And you, you could probably flush this out where you, you could flush it out more, but let me give you several. First, he viewed the world through the lens of God. Sometimes people call this a biblical worldview. What this means is you don't just leave church and then engage everything else in your life like a pagan, like God doesn't exist. You approach the events in society, you approach culture, you approach politics, you approach family life, you approach business, you approach leadership decisions, ethical decisions, you approach it all as if God is right there in front of you. And God constrains how you view the world. It's called a biblical world view. It's that the reality of God is present over everything. Do you remember when David showed up and all the Israelites were running away from Goliath? What was the difference with David in that moment? He saw the Lord. He saw the Lord. He says, here's a giant who defies the armies of the living God. He defies the name of God. How dare he? God will vindicate his name. I'm going to go and confront him, and I know that God will vindicate. What's he doing? He's seeing the world with God present when no one else did. Not only does it mean that you see the world through the lens of God, it also means what Lloyd-Jones calls you practice constant recollection. And, and this is speaking to an internal reminder in your heart of who you are before God. When you woke up this morning, you woke up yesterday morning, as you went throughout your day, your mind produced hundreds, thousands of thoughts, some of them that Satan is whispering in your mind. And so what David did, if you read the Psalms, it's so perceptive, is he preached to himself, is he constantly was reminding himself internally of who God was and who he was before the Lord. Constantly. I am a child of God. I know that God is my Redeemer. I know that He is the Sovereign King. I know that He will separate my sins as far as the East is from the West. I know these things, and I constantly remind myself of them. It's this intentionality of placing God foremost in your soul all the time and reminding of yourself of these things. If you read the book of Romans, that, this is what Paul's doing in chapters 5 through 8, is he's telling the Romans, he's like, look, these things are true of you, but you've got to know them here. The, the problem with most Christians is they don't know the spiritual blessings that have been given to them 
Paul says every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ in the heavenly places. But we live like we're paupers. You have to remind yourself of these great truths. And then third, and this is most important, it meant that David sought the Lord and pursued him with all of his heart. In Tozer's words, it's the pursuit of God. The pursuit of God. God, and knowing God, and the presence of God was his number one priority in life, period. David says in Psalm 27, 8, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Psalm 123, 1 says, to you I lift up my eyes, O you enthroned in the heavens. And friends, this is so important for your life. You know, this is the essence of the Christian life. The essence of the Christian life isn't just you having fire insurance from hell. The essence of the Christian life is knowing God. This is eternal life that you may know Him, that you may know me, Jesus says, John 17, 3. It's this relationship with God and pursuing Him, pursuing Him with all of your heart. Think about what would happen if the Christians in this country said, I'm going to put aside the things which so easily entangle me, and I'm going to pursue God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my strength. What would happen? Tozer said that this is the great problem of the modern church, is that we are just distracted people. And we put other things on pedestals that rival God in our hearts. Anybody ever read Pursuit of God? Tozer wrote that book in 45 minutes on a train. Uh, here's, here's what he says in Pursuit of God. He says, millions call themselves by his name. It is true. I mean, think about this. In America, there, there are millions of people who, who say that they're Christians and pay some token homage to him. But a simple test will show how little he is really honored among them. Let the average man be put to the proof, a question of who or what is above, and his true position will be exposed. Listen to this. Let him be forced into making a choice between God and money, between God and men, talking about the approval of men, between God and personal ambition, between God and self, between God and human love, a relationship, between anything else. And he says, and God will take second place every time. Those other things will be exalted above. However the man may protest, the proof is in the choice he makes day after day throughout his life. And this is why I find it so remarkable and so telling that David says that he's mastered this. He says, I've perfected this. I I have set the Lord always before me. This, 
this is his maxim that he has fleshed out and lived and breathed. Oh, here's the remarkable thing. I want you to turn to the right to Acts chapter 2. It's the fifth book in the New Testament. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2. And this is Peter's Pentecost sermon when Peter stands up and thousands are brought into the kingdom, brought into the church as a result of this sermon. Remember, this is after the Lord has ascended into heaven, and Peter is filled with the Spirit, stands up in Jerusalem, preaches this message, and I want you to look at verse 25 of Acts chapter 2. And, man, this is, this is so interesting. He, he says, for David says concerning him, concerning who? The Lord Jesus. Look what he quotes next. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. What's he quoting? Psalm 16, 8. And then he goes on to quote the rest of Psalm 16 and says, this, look, this is essentially a prophecy about the Lord's resurrection from the dead that he knew that the Lord would raise him up. Now, here's a question for you. How did Peter know this? How did Peter know that Psalm 16 applied to the Lord Jesus Christ? My hunch is, is that the Lord Jesus taught him. Do you remember on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is walking with the disciples, and what does it say that Jesus did? He taught them all the things in the law, the prophets, and the writings concerning himself. What was Jesus doing in those days with the disciples after he had risen from the dead? He was teaching them the Old Testament scriptures that he had fulfilled. Now, why does Peter begin with verse 25 and, and not 26, 27, and 28, which are speaking of the resurrection. I think the reason he begins with, 20, with 25 is because Jesus told him how much this verse meant to him. You see, this isn't just David's maxim. This was the Lord Jesus's maxim. The Lord Jesus is the better fulfillment of Psalm 16.8 than David is. That's what, that's what Peter's saying. We know that David messed up, right? Was David a perfect man? No. David stumbled. David fell. But who didn't? Jesus. I have set the Lord always before me. He did. Always continually. He set the Lord always before him his entire life on the hills of Galilee, in the wilderness when he was tempted by Satan, when he was confronted by the scribes and the Pharisees in the temple, when he was abandoned by his disciples, when he was betrayed by Judas in the garden of Gethsemane. He set the Lord always before him. And that's why he was so strong and why he was so bold. 
You see, our problem is, is that we so often forget the Lord, and when the first sign of struggle comes or the first sign of suffering, we shirk back to the shadows. No, not Jesus. He set the Lord always before him. How did he do it? How did David do it? What does this look like practically? Well, we could, we could elaborate a lot on this, but let me just give you three practical applications of this. First, it was a life dedicated to the Word of God. It was, you see, the, the, the life where the Lord is set always before you is a life that is lived and breathed in this book, in the Scriptures. It, it's where, and here's the difference, okay? A lot of people talk about the Bible. You'll go to a lot, you could go to a lot of churches this morning where the Bible is read, where the Bible is talked about. Let me explain the difference of what I'm saying. There's a difference between encountering the Bible outside of you and encountering the Bible inside of you. There, there's a lot of smart, dead Germans that knew the Bible backwards and forwards and didn't even believe it. The difference is this. If you turn back to Psalm 19, turn, turn to the left, back to, to Psalm 19. We're going to go back to Psalm 16 in a second. Psalm 19 is, is David's recollection of his life in the Word of God. And if you look at verse 7, notice how he describes God's Word, and then how he immediately talks about the experiential effect inside of him, okay? He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. What does it do? It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. What does it do? It makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. What does it do? Rejoices the heart. See, here's the principle. If you are a believer, who authored the, whole, the, the Scriptures? The Holy Spirit. If you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. So when you read the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit uses the Scriptures to bring life to your soul. Peter puts it like this. This is 1 Peter 2.2. 2. He says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. You remember when the last time you saw a little baby, six months old? What did they want? Milk. Milk, milk, milk. And they would cry until they got it. Peter says, like a newborn baby. That's how we are supposed to be with God's Word. We are to cry and yearn for the Word of God. And it, it, you know if you're a believer, you're dry until you have God's Word. And the way that God designed our life in the Word is for us not to be like a cistern, not to be like a cattle trough, you know, where you just pour in the water, the cows come to drink, but after a few days, what happens? There's bugs in the water, stagnation. No, 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 no. The, the Christian life in the Word is to be a flowing stream 
where we're constantly feeding on and intaking God's Word. God's Word for three weeks ago isn't going to be as effective this week for you. What did Jesus say when He was tempted by Satan? Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds out of the mouth of God. What is He saying? I live on the Word of God. I'm constantly intaking the Word of God. Always. This is, this is how He lives. The Scriptures are not static. This is so important for you to understand. This is not a dead book. Over and over in Psalm 119, uh, the King James talks about the Scriptures quickening the soul. Quickening, it means giving life. The Scriptures give life to your soul. You wonder, you know, so many people, they're depressed. They're going through life, and, and, and just life has just built up burdens on them, and they don't know where to do, they don't know where to go, they don't know what to do. And, and the simple problem is, is that they haven't availed themselves through the Word of God. The Word of God is what brings life into your soul. And so my encouragement to you is this is part of setting the Lord before you, is you have to discipline yourself to be in this book. We are the most blessed people in the world that we have this book translated into our own language. So many generations before would have given anything to have a personal Bible. You know, David, he says, this is verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Man, he treasured God's Word. And and that's one of the marks of of a Christian, is that you love God's Word. You can't wait to get up in the morning or in the evening if you're a night owl. Sit down and read, study, meditate, and apply the Word of God. Second, and and this is so important, we've talked, I'm not going to belabor this one because we've talked about it so much this past year in 2021, but it's a life dedicated to worshiping God, a life dedicated to worship, honoring Him with our lives. And this, you know, if you read the New Testament, this is multiple aspects of this. It's a private worship. It's, it's a constantly worshiping God privately, but it's also worshiping God with our families and coming together with the people of God corporately and, and worshiping God with other believers. Jesus said in Mark 12, He says, love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. When challenged by the Pharisees in John 8, we'll study this later this year, Jesus said, John 8, 49, I find it one of the most remarkable statements in John's gospel. He responded to the Pharisees. He says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father. I honor my Father. It means that he constantly felt the weightiness of who God is, and he acted accordingly. He honored the Lord. He 
He says, I have honored him perfectly. I have set the Lord always before me. And we are to do this as, as individuals. And, and let me challenge you to do this. This is something that maybe some of you haven't thought about. We are to do this as a family. In other words, when you go home with your family, you do like Joshua said. What did Joshua say? He says, as for me and my house, we will what? Serve the Lord. And you say, look, we as a family are going to do this. We are going to set the Lord always before us. Could mean that you sing the doxology before you eat dinner. It could mean that you sit down in the morning or after dinner and you open up God's Word as a family and you read it and you talk about it. And then maybe you sing a hymn of praise. Think about the implications if your family did that. Think about how your children would be discipled to do this very thing, to set the Lord always before them. And then do what you're doing this morning as you come and you gather with the people of God when the church doors are open. Corporate worship is so important, so important. Writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 10.25, do not forsake the assembling together. In the ancient world, no one besides the Jews assembled together. You know, you study the fertility gods and, and all those ancient religions. You study the, the Greek gods, the Roman gods. There wasn't this idea of corporate worship, Only the Jews came together at the tabernacle and then the temple and then the synagogues to to worship God corporately because there's a special presence of God in the corporate worship. You remember when, when, when people dedicated the temple, what happened? The fire from heaven came down and God's presence was there. And so it's an important thing for you as an individual, for you as a family to say, look, there's one day in seven, that's whose day? The Lord's. It's called the Lord's Day. And we, on our part, are going to set the Lord always before us, especially on that day. If you can't set the Lord before you on Sunday, I mean, come on, how can we do it the other six days? When I was growing up, my grandfather Castleberry, I'd go down and visit my grandparents down in Lake Jackson. And we would wake up, uh, and he would make sure, he would inspect me before we went to church. I had to be in a suit, tied, whole nine yards. And he would take me to his Sunday school class. We would leave early because grandma would always be running late. And we would leave early, and we would be there. And he taught a Sunday school class that was televised to all of Brazoria County. And I would be there hear him teach the Word of God, and then we would walk over to the service, okay? And then we would go to Luby's, the cafeteria, and then we would go back home, and at that point, I'd be like, oh, man, I am done. I mean, th- I mean this has been a full day, right? I mean, th- okay, we've honored the Lord. Well, four or five o'clock, without fail, every single Sunday, guess what Gran- Grandpa Castleberry was having us do? We're going back to the evening service. And I, man, I begrudgingly 
fought that. I did not. I wanted to stay back and watch a movie, do something else. We said, you know what, Grant? This is, is it your day? No, it's the Lord's day. And we're going to go back and we are going to honor him. And without fail, whenever, you know, I would walk, go back to church, the Lord would always bless that. With the people of God, in the word of God, in the songs of God, and I was nourished and fed. And here I am talking about it this day. It made an indelible impression upon my life. Um, the psalmist in, in, in Psalm 84 says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Jesus loved to worship with the people of God. That's why he's always, if you read the Gospels, he's always where on the Sabbath? In the synagogues. He's always going down to Jerusalem for the feast. He loved to be with the people of God. And then third, it's a life dedicated, of course, to prayer. To prayer. This was Jesus' practice all the time. Mark says, <clears throat> Mark one thirty-five, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Jesus lived this remarkable life in communion with God, constantly praying, constantly seeking the Lord, constantly going to Him. And for so many of us, you know, we work, we do, we're activists, and prayer is the afterthought that comes at the end. Not so with our Lord. He had this striking prayer life, so much so that do you remember what the disciples asked him? They didn't ask Jesus to teach them how to preach. They didn't ask Jesus to teach them how to heal. What did they ask Jesus to teach them? How to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. When I went to Atlanta earlier uh, last year, I heard Paul Washer ask this question about prayer, and it really convicted me, and I thought a lot about it. Uh, during the week, you get an update on your phone, if you have an Apple phone, of, what, of what's called your screen time. How much time each day you've spent on your phone. And here was Paul's challenge. He says, are you spending more time in prayer than you are with your screens? If you're not, that's telling. That's telling. Lloyd-Jones says, every great man or woman of God in history has been great in prayer. Great in prayer. Because it's this dependence upon God. You know, Robert Murray McShane, he, he died when he was 29 years old. When they went into his study and got his desk, right there in the middle of the desk, there were two indentions in the desk. And they're like, what is this from? It was where he was putting his elbows on the desk as he was praying. He literally wore out the desk he was praying on. And God brought 
magnificent revival to his church. And, and this is what we as the American people, the American church, haven't understood because we're such go-getters and doers that revival only comes through prayer. And, and I, and I want to challenge you. One, become a person of prayer personally and dedicate time every day to the Lord. And what I do is what I learned from Tommy Nelson is I just get a notebook. You can get a three-ring binder and put paper in it. You get a notebook, a binder, you just draw a line down the middle of the page, and you write your request on the left side, and you wait for the Lord to answer it, and you write the answers and how God answered that prayer on the right. And you record your prayers. And you do that every day and every week. But also I would challenge you, when this church gathers for corporate prayer, that is the most important thing that we do. If there is going to be a revival in this country, and I pray that there will, I believe it will happen in the prayer meetings of our churches. And I pray it happens in this church, in this room. Because the Holy Spirit loves to honor when people are in prayerful dependence upon Him. He, only God will get the glory. He will not share His glory with another. And when we come in dependence upon Him, that's when He loves to work and loves to bless. We can't coerce God into revival. We can't. There's, you know, we, we, could, we can meet and, and pray every day for the next year, and revival might not happen. But I do know this. If we don't pray... Revival won't happen. It is always the means by which God works in great ways. So, my challenge to you is this, that this be your resolution as well. To set the Lord always before you. Now, let me give you four reasons why I think you should do this. First, there's no greater reality than God. Who else would you set before you? Why would you set anything else before you? If God is the greatest being in the universe, why would you set anyone else before you? Second, God is the source of joy. Nothing else will bring you joy like the Lord does. Look at Psalm 16. Verse 9, he says, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Third, this task, this work, this maxim of setting the Lord always before you will be what you are doing for all of eternity in heaven. All of eternity will be spent setting the Lord always before you in worship to Him. And then fourth, this is the only way to face the future without fear. Look at the last phrase there in verse 8. David says, because I have done this, Look at, look at this application. He says, because I have set the Lord always before me. 
He says, he is at my right hand and I shall not be shaken. Wow. The right hand is a phrase that that means God's strong protection, that God protects you right where you most need it at your right hand. Psalm 121.5 says, the Lord is your keeper, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. Psalm 73.23, I am constantly with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. You know from experience that when you face something that you're afraid of, it helps to have somebody who's stronger and more powerful. I remember as a boy growing up, and in, in, uh, I would go visit my grandparents in Louisiana, and they had a tree farm. And on this tree farm, they had seen wildcats. And so I would be so afraid at night to go in those woods in the dark, just afraid to step outside the house. You probably would be too. You know, your mind starts playing games on you when you're walking in the woods and you've heard a story about a wildcat. You, you start looking, you think your mind tells you that wildcat is, is crouching on a tree and just and following. I wouldn't be afraid when my grandpa, Bob Myers, would go out there with me. He have his big flashlight, his gun. Wouldn't be afraid. Why? Because he was with me. David says this is the same principle. He says, look, because... I've set the Lord before me. I'm not afraid. I am not moved. That phrase, being moved, is a picture of a battle line being pushed back, of of them caving under the pressure. And David says, because he knows whose presence he lives in, he knows that God is with him and that he is not afraid. And this explains his great courage in so many situations. He says in Psalm 27.3, though an army encamp encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. And his confidence wasn't in himself. It was in the Lord because he had set the Lord before him. So who knows what 2022 is going to hold for us. Who knows? Governments may topple. You might lose your job. You might receive a diagnosis you weren't expecting. The tragedies, the difficulties, persecution, suffering, Lord willing, happiness, abundant blessings. Who knows what the Lord has in store for us? But I do know, like David says, you set the Lord before you, you do not have to be afraid. If you set the Lord before you and you have the presence of God, you have nothing to fear but God himself. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. I have set the Lord always before me. Heavenly Father, we endeavor to do this, Lord. This is so important that we see in the life of David and in the life of our Lord, this intentionality of living their life on this earth with the Lord constantly before us. 
And Lord, we know that we've failed in this work. We know that we will fail in this work. And so, Lord, we thank you for the grace that is found at the cross of Christ. But we pray, Lord, that this, like David and like our Lord, would become the discipline of our life, that we would be defined as a God-centered people, as transcendent people who set the Lord before us. And Lord, give us this assurance that because you are at our right hand, we will not be moved. We will not be shaken. Help us be these courageous Christians like David and our Lord. Lord, do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us be single-minded God-seekers. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.